Well, uh, we are in a series today uh, called Questioning Christianity, and uh, each week what we're doing is we're looking at a different problem, a different question that, that a lot of people today have with Christianity. And so uh, today the question that we're going to look at is a question about the Bible. And I'm going to frame it this way. Uh, is the Bible unreliable and outdated? It's a question uh, people, a lot of people are asking today. Is the Bible unreliable and outdated? Can we believe it? Can we trust it? Can we trust the Bible? And, you know, this is a question that over the years I've struggled with quite a bit. So uh, last week my sister was out and, and I told her I was doing this series about questioning Christianity. And I asked her, I said, Kara, Kara, that's her name, Kara, you know, what, what, what question do you struggle with the most about Christianity? And she said, you know, Brent, if I'm honest, the, the thing that I struggle with is uh, suffering, the problem of why good people suffer. Never been able to uh, understand that question, and, and, you know, as I study the Bible, I still kind of struggle with it. And then she turned the question back on me and said, Brent, what, what question do you struggle with when it comes to Christianity? And I said, you know, honestly, uh, the question that I struggle with is this one. Uh, the question about the reliability of the Bible. You see, I, I've dedicated my life to the Bible. You know, I've, I'm a pastor, and one of the reasons why I became a pastor is because I love Scripture. I remember way back one day at, when I was 20 years old, I was reading the book of Ezra, and uh, in Ezra, there's a line, Ezra was a scribe, and there was a line that said, Ezra purposed in his heart to study, practice, and teach the Scripture. And at that moment, I thought, yes, that's what I want to do with my life. That's what I was born to do. And so I sort of have dedicated my life to this book. And yet at the same time, the more I study the book, the more I engage with the book, the more uh, scholars I read, you know, especially in our contemporary culture, the more uh, difficult it has become to navigate issues related to the authority of the Bible. So this is a very personal issue for me. And maybe for you, this is personal. You know, you think, gosh, I love the Bible. I've grown up with it, and I, I believe it's authoritative. But man, what do I do with the claims of the miraculous? Or what do I do with uh, the idea that maybe uh, it wasn't translated or uh, copied correctly? What do I do with the books that I read that, that seem to call into question whether I could really believe in this book? And so we're going to talk about that today, and what I want to do is I want to share some things with you that have helped me uh, gain and, and in some sense regain confidence in the reliability of the Bible. I want to begin with a quote, so uh, Rachel Held uh, Evans says this, the Bible is an ancient collection of stories, poems, prophecies, proverbs, letters, and laws, written and compiled by countless authors spanning multiple centuries, and cited by everyone from William Blake to Beyonce. The Bible has been translated into more than 2,000 languages, its tales inspiring the art of Shakespeare and Steinbeck and Zora Neale Hurston and blind Willie Johnson. Its words are etched into our gravestones, scribbled onto the white posters we carry into picket lines and strategically incorporated into our dating profiles. So what she's saying here is that the Bible, I mean, almost everybody could agree with what she's saying. The Bible's in some ways... Uh, a, a pretty amazing book. It's inspiring. I think most people would agree with that. Uh, it is, it's influential. Man, it's, it's influenced anyone for, uh, everyone from Shakespeare to Beyonce. Man, it's, it's, a, it's a book that has wide influence. It's, it's great literature. Uh, it's beautiful. I mean, there's a lot of things to agree about when it comes to Rachel Held Evans' 
statement. You know, this, the Bible is an amazing book, but the question I think we struggle with is, is it a reliable book? Uh, there is one very skeptical person, a, an atheist, who put it this way. His name is John Murray. He said, the Bible is a fictional, non-historical narrative. So yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it's influential. But at the end of the day, it is fictional. It is unreliable. It's legend. Sure, the Bible's inspiring, but can I entrust my life to it? Can I, can I believe it? Is, it? is it trustworthy? And so that's, that's what we're going to look at today. And I want to look at it through uh, 1 Timothy 3. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 16. Uh, this is a uh, famous passage about the authority of Scripture. And uh, it's written to a young pastor who's named Timothy. And uh, Timothy was pastoring a congregation and and it seems from, writing, from reading this passage that maybe he was uh, doubting the scripture or maybe uh, wanting to move away from the scripture. And, and Paul uh, writes him, the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> and he tells Timothy this in four, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have uh, been acquainted with the sacred writings which are, were able, are able to make you wise, for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul makes a claim here in the statement in this passage. He says, Timothy, don't move away from scripture. Don't ignore the scripture. Trust the scripture because all scripture in verse 16 is breathed out by God. Now here, the author has created a new word. In Greek, it's the word theonoustos. Can we all say that together? Theonoustos. And uh, literally, it means God breathed. The claim about the scripture. This, this Bible that is sitting in your lap or is on your uh, device, uh, Paul says it is God breathed. It is inspired. It is not only a human book, but it's also inspired by the Holy Spirit. What you have is the word of God. Now, what does that mean? And how can we trust it? I think this implies three things about the Bible, and these three things uh, have sort of helped me gain confidence uh, in the Bible over the years, and the three things are these. It implies the diversity of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible, and the relevance of the Bible. We're going to be looking at those three things. And so first, uh, all scripture is God-breathed. I think first this means something about the, the diversity of the Bible. Because notice it says, all scripture is God-breathed. All of it is. From Genesis to Revelation. Now, uh, I think for many of us, we view the Bible as a book. Right? This is what we learned in Sunday school. This is, I mean, it's all... It's all, you know, bound in leather. It, it comes to us as one book, and so we believe this is what it is. The Bible is a book. And almost like it dropped out of heaven one day. You know, God wrote it down, and, and there it dropped out magically from heaven, bound in leather, right, with all the footnotes still there. But what I want you to see here is that although the Bible is unified, it is a unity. It's, a, it's re remarkably unified. It is a story about uh, God creating the world, what went wrong with the world, and how through Jesus, God is healing the world that he made. So it is a one storyline from Genesis to Revelation. There's a plot. But that doesn't mean that it's not very, very diverse. I want you to think the Bible less like a book and more like a library. The scripture is a collection of books made up of many, many, many genres 
written by many different authors throughout a long period of time. And so uh, what are the genres that you have in the Bible? Well, you've got uh, narrative. In fact, most of the Bible is story. Uh, You also have law codes uh, written both in the Old and the New Testament. You've got a sermon. You've got a sermon. You've got letters written by apostles in the New Testament. You've got biography. There's a memoir. There's poetry. There's prophecy. There's one strange genre that we don't have anymore called apocalyptic. And so the Bible is, although it is God's word, don't think of it as a book. Think of it as a collection of books. It's a library. Now, this has huge, huge implications for how you read it because it means that when you read the Bible, you shouldn't read every part of the Bible the same. You need to first understand what genre am I reading, and you ask the question, how does the author want me to read that particular genre? And so if you're reading poetry, there's a certain way to read an Old Testament psalm, and it's very, very different from the way you might read Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Or if you're reading the book of Revelation, uh, apocalyptic literature, this is a lot different than the way you might read the book of Genesis. And so understanding the Bible as a collection of writings rather than one book, it has radical implications for how you read the book. And I think it clears away a lot of the problems initially that we might have with the Bible. Because you often will hear this. Someone might say, you know, I believe, and conservatives might say this, I believe that, that you ought to take the Bible literally. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You know, this, you ought to read the Bible literally, literally to take it seriously. And then there's more progressive people that say, oh, no, 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 you, it's a meta, you take the Bible metaphorically. You never take the Bible uh, literally. Well, who's right? I want to argue that they're both right and they're both wrong. Sometimes you ought to take the Bible literally. For example, in the book of Luke, uh, which is a historical document, Luke begins the book by saying, I've interviewed the witnesses and I've compiled the documents and I'm writing an orderly account and that's how I want you to read it, as historical. This is a claim that that book is making. But then other books, like in the book of Revelation, this is apocalyptic. And it's filled with metaphor. And so in the book of Revelation, you've got a dragon and some beasts and a, gi- a gigantic uh, a prostitute. <laughs> and and this, is, this is metaphorical language, and this is the way you read apocalyptic literature. If you read all the Bible the same, if you take it all literally, you're going to find yourself in a mess when it comes to uh, understanding the Bible and taking it seriously. And so uh, understand the diversity of the Bible. Understand that there are different genres. And understanding the genre of a biblical text is the first step in engaging, uh, first step in engaging it in a meaningful way. You've got to get the genre. This book, although it's all scripture, is diverse, and we ought to read it that way. Second of all, I, want to, I think it says something about the reliability of the documents. Uh, when it says that all Scripture is God-breathed, I think at least it's saying that we can take the Bible seriously, that we can trust in the truth of the Bible, that the claims the, the, the Bible makes are indeed reliable. Uh, if God is the author of Scripture, God is, God is a God of truth. Uh, God is a God who doesn't lie. And so when you, when you come to this library of, of books that we call the Bible, <clears throat> you can trust that it is reliable with the claims that it's making. When it's making a moral claim, you can trust that that claim is reliable. When it's making a theological claim, you can trust that that is reliable. When it's making um, 
a historical claim, you could trust that that claim is the truth as it is recorded. Now, I want to give you some reasons for the historical reliability of the Bible under this point. Now, it, uh, admittedly, I'm not talking about the moral reliability of the Bible here or the theological reliability. I'm, do, I'm narrowing down and talking about the historical reliability, and I'm doing it for the New Testament. Why am I doing it? Because it's way too much information uh, for one sermon, and even what I'm going to give you is way too much. But here's some reasons why I think the New Testament documents are uh, reliable in the historical claims that they're making. Number one, because they're early. The historical documents of the New Testament were written very early. So a lot of people say that uh, you can't trust the the claims, especially the the biographies of Jesus, because they were written way later. And just like the the game of telephone, uh, it began with Jesus as a historical peasant, you know, a rabbi who wandered around Galilee, but as time went on and as multiple centuries went on, uh, the Jesus of history became the Christ of faith. Dan Brown, do you remember Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code? Uh, One thing that he said was that Jesus was just a peasant, and it was Constantine that invented the, the idea of a divine Jesus. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is there wasn't centuries that went by before the, the original documents that make historical claims were written. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all written in the second half of the first century. And they were written during a time where all, when all the original eyewitnesses, uh, many of them were still alive. To, dis- to agree or disagree with what these public documents were saying. And then even in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is talking about the resurrection, he says, listen, Jesus was seen by 500 people, and he said, most of them are still alive. Almost as if to say, go out. if you don't believe me, go ask them. They'll tell you what they saw. And so these are books that are written very early, uh, during the lifetimes of the original eyewitnesses, and therefore I think the claims are They can be trusted. I think they're reliable. Here's another thing. They're very well attested. They're very well attested. There are independent witnesses when it comes to the Bible. And so just like in a court of law, you know, a testimony becomes more reliable as more witnesses uh, come to the table. Uh, What you have in the Bible is a multiple attestation. You have several independent witnesses all testifying to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, when you look at the Gospels, already you've got multiple attestation. You've got four uh, biographies all written about the same Jesus, and by and large, those stories agree, which in a court of law would strengthen the case, and it leads you to believe in the reliability of the story. But when it comes to the Bible, there are even uh, uh, extra-biblical literature that corroborates the story that's written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, for example, um, uh, Tacitus, Suetonius, uh, two uh, Greek uh, historians, uh, talk about Jesus in their histories. Uh, the Jewish Talmud talks about Jesus. And uh, uh, Josephus, who's a, uh, a Jewish historian, mentions Jesus. And I'm going to quote him <clears throat> here in a second. So, uh, Josephus, born in AD 38, wrote Antiquities of the Jews, actually says something about Jesus, and here's what he says. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous, and many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified, 
<clears throat> and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. So this is an independent testimony. This is a witness outside of the Bible talking about the life, ministry, death, and the believed resurrection of Jesus. This is a well-attested document. The history is reliable. Also, uh, the documents that we have, they are counterproductive. And what I mean by that is people will often say, yeah, yeah, the Gospels, yeah, the New Testament, uh, these are, they're not reliable because they're written by people that wanted to uh, consolidate their power and to build their movement. And so they made up stories about Jesus being divine so that they could uh, accrue power and ascendancy in the Roman world. Uh, you just can't trust the documents. Well, when you read the documents, they're way too counterproductive to be helpful in accruing somebody's power. Because it writes about uh, the early Christian leaders in a way that's almost embarrassing. And so, for example, you've got the Apostle Peter, right? The leader in the early church. Well, read the Gospels. Peter is always putting his foot in his mouth. Peter is the one who denied Jesus with cursing and swearing, right? If you want to build a movement and consolidate your power, you don't write yourself into the story that way. Here's another thing. When you read the Gospels and you see Jesus as he was arrested and as he goes to the cross, all the disciples, every single one of them, disappear into the darkness. All of them are cowards. And then when Jesus did rise from the dead and it has the accounts of the empty tomb, none of the disciples believed it initially. Mary, she goes to the tomb and it's empty and the first thing she assumes is that somebody stole the body. Right? And so the early disciples, they're doubting and they're skeptical. If you want to consolidate your movement, if you want to write a story that, that accrues power, you write it like this. You say, when Jesus, you know, the early disciples, they write it like this, you know, on the third day. You know, Jesus said he would rise on the third day. On the third day, we camped out at that tomb. And we brought a band, and we brought a choir, and as the sun peaked over the hills, we counted down 10, 9, 8, 7. We believed it, but none of the stories read that way. They are way too counterproductive to be used to accrue power. They, that speaks of authenticity. The only reason why they would have written the story this way is if it really happened. Here's another thing. Uh, I think the documents are meticulously preserved. So um, I did some study on this this past week, and what I learned is that, you know, the, the Bible, so uh, the, the Bible is a, is, a, is a religion of the book. From the very beginning, they valued um, scribes and people that uh, were able to copy the manuscripts. And therefore, the manuscripts were copied incredibly well, especially as you compare them to other ancient, ancient documents. So, for example, uh, when you look at the copies of the Bible, there are 5,700 Greek manuscripts, uh, uh, 5,700 copies of the original uh, New Testament documents. That's only in Greek. But if you add in Latin, there's an additional 10,000 documents. And then when you add in the, the quotes that the early church fathers uh, have written down of quotes of the New Testament, there are more than a million quotes of the New Testament documents. And so the, uh, these documents were meticulously preserved. Now, um, it's true that we don't have the original autographs, and an autograph is a manuscript, not like somebody's name. We don't have the original parchment that Paul wrote on when he wrote the book of Corinthians, for example. 
And there are, there are errors in the, in the copies that we have. There are scribal errors and misspelled words and grammatical errors and things like that. And some bigger errors that you'll read about when you look at uh, the footnotes in your Bible. But when you have 15,000, over 15,000 ancient manuscripts, you're, you're, it, it allows you to reconstruct the original really, really well. Comparatively, uh, the other uh, ancient documents like Josephus that I just read or Suetonius or, or uh, Tacitus, those have about uh, 200 or less uh, copies. So compared to other ancient documents, the Bible is very, very well preserved. Bruce Metzger, who's a professor at Princeton, a, a very, um, some consider him to be the best textual critic of the 20th century. He was being interviewed one time about the re- reliability of the uh, early uh, New Testament documents, and this is what he said. Um, The interviewer said, all these decades of scholarship, of study, of writing textbooks, of delving into the minutia of the New Testament text, what has that done to your personal faith? And Bruce Metzger replied, it has increased the basis of my personal faith to see the firmness with which these materials have come down to us. With a multiplicity of copies, some of which are very, very ancient. And the interviewer says, so scholarship hasn't diluted your faith? Bruce Metzger replies, on the contrary, it has built it. I have asked questions all my life. I've dug into the text. I have studied this thoroughly, and today I know with confidence that my trust in Jesus has been well-placed, very well-placed. Princeton textual critic says, the more I studied the copies, the more I studied the textual evidence, the more it increased my confidence in the reliability of the historical New Testament documents. Now, somebody says, well, um, I don't care how well-attested they are, I don't care how reliable they are, I don't care how old they are, it doesn't matter, these stories contain miracles, and I just can't believe in miracles. Well, if that's what you say, at least admit that that is a bias that you're bringing to the text. That is not a statement about the text's reliability, that is a bias that you're bringing about the about miracles. So Tim Keller puts it this way, and then I'll move on. He says, the biblical accounts can't be reliable. Some say that the biblical accounts can't be reliable because they contain descriptions of miracles. The premise behind such a claim is science has proven that there's no such thing as miracles. But embedded in such a statement is a deep, is a, is a leap of faith. It is one thing to say that science is only equipped to test for natural causes and cannot speak to any others. It is quite another to insist that science proves that no other causes could possibly exist. And so he says, if your problem is miracles, if that's why you can't trust the documents, he says, at least admit that that is an unprovable bias that you're bringing to the text. The texts are reliable. They're historically reliable. And we can trust them. So uh, if we're looking at why we can trust the Bible, first of all, I want you to see the diversity of Scripture. This is not all one book. These are different genres. You need to read each one of them properly. I think that clears up a lot of issues to begin with. But second of all, when it comes to the New Testament historical documents, these things are reliable. You can trust them, Uh, especially when you compare them to other ancient historical documents. But finally, I want to move further, and I want to end by talking about the relevancy of Scripture. Because the claim that Paul makes here in the passage is not only that the scripture is God-breathed and therefore reliable. 
he's not just saying that Scripture is trustworthy. He's saying that Scripture is necessary. That Scripture is eminently relevant to your life. That we need a God-breathed word. And what he means by that is he says, you, you need the scriptures, you need this, this God-breathed word. Number one, for wisdom. Notice, he says, he says, Timothy, I want you to continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed. This is verse 14. Knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which were able to make you wise. You need scripture, you need a God-breathed word in order to make you wise. You know, we live in a culture that is glutted with knowledge, but is starving for wisdom. We live in a culture that believes in the myth of progress, where old and ancient equals bad, and new always equals good. But there is so much wisdom, collective wisdom in these ancient documents that, you, that frankly, you need for your life. And there are many of us that, that are just starving for wisdom. Our, our lives are a wreck. And we've made all kinds of bad decisions and, and we need wisdom. You might be here and you're saying, you know, I didn't grow up with good parents who, who showed me how to live well. I just didn't have that. And, I, and I've, I've made so many bad decisions in, decisions in life. And I feel like, you know, the wisdom train left the building and I wasn't on it. In these ancient documents, you have wisdom for living. The Bible is a book about the human condition. It tells you who you are and how you're supposed to live. There, there is wisdom in here about how to use sexuality. There is wisdom in here about how to use money. There's wisdom in this book about how to relate to power. There is wisdom in this book about how to live in marriage well. There is all sorts of ancient wisdom that we need in this God-breathed book. And so it's a source of wisdom, but, but not, not only is it a source of wisdom, it, it also is a source of authority. So he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching and rebuke for, for rebuke, for correction and for training in righteousness. And so he says, this book will tell you not only how to live, but also what you're doing wrong. It's good for reproof. It's good for correction. And we all need an authoritative voice in our life to tell us when we're wrong. You know, the, the scripture is a voice from the outside. It is not a part of culture, but it stands above all cultures. And because of that, it has a self-corrective mechanism in it. it. It's able to look at all cultures and say, it's able to affirm some things about the culture and say, no, this is wrong in that culture. And we all need a voice from the outside to tell us when we're wrong. You know, all of us need a God who can disagree with us. You know, if you have no authority and, and the, the God you believe in is the God that you always agree with, this is the God, I believe in a God that's like this and like this and like that and I would never believe in a God like that and I couldn't believe in a God like that and my God is, is just this way. Well, that is a God that you've developed out of your own head. It's a glorified version of you and a God who is a glorified version of you could never disagree with you but the scriptures give us a voice from the outside, a voice that sometimes we disagree with. There's a quote in your bulletin, uh, which uh, is by Todd Billings, and he says this. He says, we are parched for a word from God. 
As Westerners in the 21st century, many of us will look under any rock, search any trail, explore any website in pursuit of promises of some transcendent word. We yearn for a word that will break into our lives. However, when we are honest with ourselves, we also long for a word from God that conforms to our own plans and wishes. We want a word from God that endorses our own decisions and priorities. We want to be affirmed by God in what we already are doing, not confronted and called to repentance. We want God's word, but on our own terms. And when you come to the Bible and, and, you, and you give it weight and authority in your life, you're saying, yes, God, I, I'm, I'm going to come and I'm going to put myself under this book and I'm going to let the book contradict me and disagree with me. And tell me when I'm wrong. There's a story of a woman, and she was a Christian woman, and she was unhappily married. She met a man that was kind of a young, you know, better model, and so she wanted to leave her husband and and go after the new man. And so she goes to the Bible looking for God to affirm her to do this. And so she looks and looks and looks, and finally she goes to Ephesians 4, where where, uh, Paul says, Therefore I tell you, put on the new man. Yes, she said, all right, that's God, oh, I, I can do that. Right, we want a God who affirms us all the time, but when, you, when, you, when you're careful with Scripture and you read it wisely the way it's meant to be read and we take into account all the different genres, and after all that, you let the, the Word speak into your life, you have a God who can, who can correct you and lead you and tell you how to live. We need this old book. We need this old book for salvation. Notice he says, Timothy, don't, don't, don't leave the scripture, the holy scripture, which you've known from childhood. Don't leave it because it is God-breathed. This book is, is profitable for teaching and for rebuke. But he says it's also valuable to give you wisdom for salvation. So in this book, we, we learn how to to be rescued. It's a book about the human condition. It's a book that says that God created the world, but that the world has gone wrong. The world is broken. There's something wrong with the world and with you. But God loves this world so much that he sent his son into the world to bleed and die, to forgive you, to save you, to rescue you. And you only know that story unless you open the book. Someone says, well, I can learn about God through the book of nature. I I could learn all sorts of things about God from 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 just observing creation. I don't need the book. Well, that's true. You can learn a lot about God from nature. That God is creative. That God is an artist. That God is powerful. That God is, is wise. But nature sends mixed messages, doesn't it? Because nature is beautiful, but it's also violent. Nature is red in tooth and claw. And the strong eat the weak. You see, if you're just looking at nature, you're going to be very confused about God. In order to find out who God is, you've got to read the book. You've got to open up this library of different genres and let the book tell you about who God is. Only the Bible can tell you that God is love. And that God loved you so much that he gave his son for you. Only in the Bible do you learn about the story of God's rescue, of his creation. He says, Timothy, you need this book for salvation. 
This book will save your life. So he says, Timothy, open the book, preach the book, trust the book. Yes, understand the different genres and be a sophisticated reader. But put yourself under the scripture. The story of uh, St. Augustine, who is a, he's an old church father and he was uh, searching for God. And he had tried everything. He had tried observing God in nature. He did, he'd tried various um, philosophies of life, and he still didn't feel like he was saved, that he was rescued. And so he's searching, 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 and, and one day he sits down at the base of a tree. And there he's sitting, and he's, I don't know what he's doing. He's contemplating life or whatever, the human existence, or uh, where, where is God? And, and in, the, in his confessions, he tells a story. He said, I'm sitting by the tree, I'm looking for God, and suddenly I hear a little schoolgirl, and she, she's singing a song about, about the Bible. And the song goes, pick up and read, pick up and read. And so Augustine says, okay, he picked up the Bible and he began to read it. And from the library of Scripture, he found direction for his life. He, found, he, he was able to, to hear what was wrong with him. And he was able to be rescued. So Paul tells Timothy, this is a God-breathed book essential for salvation. I know there are so many more questions you may have, and I do too, and I was able only to address a few things, but, but this is a direction to go in. There are plenty of books to read, on a scripture and how to read it well and, and how, you know, you can uh, find out its reliability, but this is a path forward. And even if you're struggling, maybe you're struggling with the Bible, I would still ask you to pick up and read. This is a book filled with wisdom. This is a book that you need. It's a book that can save your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you <clears throat> so much for uh, this book that you've given us or this collection of books, the library of scripture written over a thousand years by many authors, many genres to be read in, in different ways. God, it is not an easy book. God, it's an old book. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we, as we search the scriptures. I pray that you would help us, God, to... Um, really rely on you through your word, that we would trust in your scriptures. God, that you'd give us uh, energy to explore the evidence. God, if we have questions, I pray that we could be honest with those and, and, and navigate those well. God, we pray, ultimately, though, that as, as we read the scriptures, as we read it well, that you would fill us with wisdom. God, that you would f direct our lives God, critique us, rebuke us, show us where we're wrong. And Father, I pray that you would rescue us. Lord, that you would save us, that you would heal us, that you would redeem us, that you would do all the wonderful things that you do as we open up your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.